support the Black Lives Matter movement and think it's important to hear real stories straight from the activists. We hope that this series sheds an informative light and encourages you to take action. This interview-based podcast puts the spotlight on finding the why behind the motives of these ambitious individuals. Please join us to hear about a Black Lives Matter activist, Oram Oro. Oram Oro is an artist on all levels, including creating music and graphic designing. After witnessing the riots that have occurred in response to George Floyd murder in the Twin Cities, she founded the organization The Outsiders. Her mission is to provide basic goods and necessities to the communities that have experienced mass destruction of their neighborhoods and no longer have access to stores. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So our first question, uh, what does Black Lives Matter mean to you? To me, I feel like that phrase means, although there are many lives and many cultures that exist in America, there is obviously a very heavy disproportion of cases, whether it's police brutality, poverty, so many things that affect specifically the Black community. And that phrase is calling attention to those lives that are at risk because of these factors. I think especially because, you know, the rebuttal to that is often all lives matter. That is very true. All lives do matter. And that is nothing to take away from that statement. But right now, this movement is calling attention to Black lives. Specifically, it is very often in relation to police brutality. And there is a very high percentage of cases that revolve around police targeting Black people specifically. And so this phrase is to call attention to that injustice and to shed light on it so that we can do something about it. And so it's us deciding to focus on the communities that are predominantly Black that are being targeted in a lot of different ways and to band together to say that we want to do something about it to put a stop to it. That, that was really powerful. Thank you for sharing what Black Lives Matter means to you. We know you're the founder of The Outsiders after George Floyd's murder. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So I personally have been involved in different organizing efforts in the Twin Cities, which is St. Paul and Minneapolis, um, for years. I'm an artist. I'm a multidisciplinary artist. I do graphic design, illustration, painting, murals, music lots of different things. So I've always kind of been in contact with nonprofit organizations that are doing work in the community to try to bring people together, make a change. So when this, you know, very unfortunate incident happened, it, it was really heavy. It shocked all of us here. Not shocked because we're unaccustomed to it. It's just like, oh man, this is happening again. There was something different about it this time, though. You could just kind of feel it in the air. I think the trauma of seeing that video just ignited so many people in the Twin Cities that all of us were active. The very next day, we were out protesting, making signs, making sure that our voices were heard, that this is not okay. I think what was different about this time is just maybe, I guess, you know, we've all been on quarantine because of COVID. We're just... There's a lot of pent up energy. So us getting outside this time around just carried so much weight to it that by the very next day, the second day of protests, you could tell that things were different 
they started evolving very quickly. It went from protesting to what I guess could be called rioting. We would like to call it an uprising. I would say that my point of view is that I do not always believe in peaceful protests. Sometimes you have to do what's necessary to make sure that your voices are heard. But this specifically went beyond just non-peaceful protests to very deliberate and planned attacks on communities of color. There was a lot of destruction to the communities for four days straight. We watched monuments in our spaces burn. And that's just such a crazy feeling to have to sit and watch your city burn, whether it's being on the front lines in person or just you're up to date on all of your friends' stories and live broadcasts. And it just, it, it just was crazy, honestly. Like I don't really have words to describe it. And um, by the very, like the second day of the protest, I just knew I wanted to do something. And I wasn't sure if I should tap into my traditional networks of organizations that I've already worked with or friends that I knew that I ha that had efforts going on or I just wasn't sure what to do. So we were all contacting each other, like, what do we need? What's going on? What are we missing? How can I be a part? And there were multiple events that were scheduled that either got canceled because of lack of organization. Again, we were just moving so fast. Like that's no shade on anybody. It's just, there was so much happening so quickly we were trying to keep up. So either a lack of organization didn't allow me to really be part of certain events or there was genuinely threats of, you know, outside influences coming in. We had reports of white supremacists and anarchists coming from other cities that were specifically here to target people and attack people that were you know, hacking personal conversations on social media telling you that they're coming to harm you. So a lot of things were getting canceled because we weren't sure if the community was safe. So with that in mind, I just felt like my efforts were not being applied because a lot of the things that I wanted to be a part of just weren't quite panning out. I figured I could either keep trying to attach myself to other events happening, but in the chaos, that just didn't seem like the best use of my skills. So I decided to you know, use the organizing skills that I had picked up over the years to just kind of start my own thing with my friends that I had that were near me. So we started doing this work before we even had a name for it. And we decided that we wanted to focus on not only the community that was impacted by their lack of resources, but the people who were on the front lines, the people who were leading this initiative, showing up, protesting, getting in the face of the police and the National Guard that was here. They, their lives were at risk, you know, and I wanted to make sure that it, to see this movement go to, to what it could be, I wanted to make sure we supported them. So my friends and I came together and we just started asking for donations from our social networks. I was prepared to spend my own money. I woke up in the morning like, I'm going to go buy things. I don't know what the community needs, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to buy it. And I just put on my Instagram like, hey, if you guys want to send me some money, I'm about to drive out to the suburbs to get some supplies. You know, if you want to add to the effort, let me know. And so many people responded and were sending their support and donations and funds. And it happened all so quickly that I was like, okay, I can't keep taking these payments in my personal cash app because that makes me feel weird. So let me make sure that I'm putting this where it needs to go. So we needed a name. So we came up with the outsiders because we're always outside. We're always active. And we just decided to be there to support in whatever way we could. So what we did was we got a list of volunteers to just add to our efforts so we weren't doing things by ourselves because there's only four of us. Um, we were having people drive out to the suburbs, if not Wisconsin sometimes, because not only were the 
the local stores in the community affected, but the surrounding suburbs, because people have to go a bit farther to get goods, were also starting to run out. Also because of COVID, they were already a little low in stock. So we were driving out to Wisconsin, we're buying baby supplies and food and non-perishables, you know, anything that we can that can support the community because they don't have access to those things. But we were also getting things to help the protesters be safe as well. So we were getting you know, knee pads and helmets and goggles because they're spraying tear gas and shooting rubber bullets and all of these things. So really we were just tapping into the networks that we had of organizers already doing work, seeing what they need, seeing where we could fill in and then having our volunteers do what they needed to do to have access to those goods. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I love how you, you know, saw an issue and you're like, you know what, I'm just gonna go for it. I'm going to start my own little organization and organize this and donate to my community. I think that's amazing. This, um, this, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, since you live in Minneapolis, could you share about the event that had transpired in your city in St. Paul after the event of, uh, George Floyd, um, murder? Yes. So, um, I don't actually live in Minneapolis. I live in St. Paul, but they're called the Twin Cities. They're literally like 10 minutes apart. Like there's only like a physical difference, but for the most part, you can easily get from one to the other. So when George Floyd was murdered, that was the evening of Monday, the 25th Memorial Day. I'd say we all found out about it mostly the next day on Tuesday morning. And it was just really, really heavy. And I know a lot of people weren't really sure what to do but a lot of people were also activated. They were angry, they were outraged, they got in the streets ASAP. Protests started on Tuesday, like very quickly. So I'd say all day Tuesday, people were protesting and it was genuinely like, okay, we, we're doing this. People didn't leave. We were watching and staying up to date with everybody's stories and they just, they stayed out all night. They were there to the following day and they were in the streets. Then come Wednesday, that's when things started to get a little different. So people were continuing to protest. People did not go home. They were out the entire time. But I'd say like by Wednesday evening, that's when I first started to see accounts of people sharing that stores were being broken into, things were being um, vandalized, things were being set on fire. Again, as I said, sometimes non-peaceful protest is necessary, but I saw a lot of accounts of my friends sharing videos of people where they're like, yo, they're not from here. I know there was one video in specific before a lot of the destruction started to happen of a strange white man in like all black, he had on a gas mask. He was hearing an umbrella, an open umbrella, and it wasn't raining, so we were all like, who's that guy, super sketchy. And there's video of him going to um, an auto supply store and he was just breaking all the windows. Like, it wasn't like a, you could tell it wasn't a, an action based in passion. It was just like a, I'm doing this real quick. Then you, there's a video of him writing in graffiti, like free stuff for everybody, go get whatever you want. And then like people came, from the community came to him like, yo, what are you doing? We're not, we're not doing that. Like stop what you're doing. And he wasn't listening. He just did what he wanted and then disappeared. And we're not quite sure who he was. There's different stories, but you know, conjecture, but we don't really know. But I do know that was a turning point in the events that followed. So from there, 
um, there's something called the broken glass theory, which is when there's a lot of movement and political activism and people out on the streets, if people see broken glass or see destruction, they automatically switch what they're doing. And they're like, oh, okay, is that what everybody's doing? Guess that's what we're doing now. So that was really something that was a catalyst that shifted the energy of these protests. And from there, Wednesday night, we just saw more and more destruction. Um, it was crazy Look, sitting. I was not out on the streets at this time. I was just watching. And so I, we saw the target that's on Lake Street get broken into. People were flooding in like hundreds of people and they were breaking things and stealing things and just to see something as, you know, iconic as Target in ruins was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really real. I can't, okay, this is happening. Then after that, the fires started, entire buildings were up in flames and we're all just shocked, you know, like, first of all, we're worried, like our friends are on the streets, they were protesting and I'm just, I don't know if things will explode. I don't know if things are safe. So we're all just at home, like, I hope everyone's okay. Like, this is crazy. And then in addition to that, you're watching your city burn. I'm not saying that we necessarily mourn a corporation that's moved into a local community, but at the same time, that corporation provides very necessary goods for people who live there. So you can't help but think like, okay, this is happening. This will have repercussions. Is this community going to be okay? All right, this is crazy. So literally I stayed up until like four or 5 PM with my partner, just watching these videos and they didn't stop. There was never any less people in the streets and there was multiple fires that night. So we finally fell asleep. Just like, wow, that that's crazy. I woke up in the morning, of course, check social media right away. Like what's happening, expecting things to have died down. And by 8 or 9 a.m., people were already in the streets. It was full. Buildings were still on fire. Things were still hot and smoking. Like, nobody let up. So we're like, okay, this is happening, happening. Like, this isn't stopping. So that day, I actually went down and participated in some of the marches. Um, one of them that was outside of uh, the commissioner's house who had the decision whether or not to charge Derek Chauvin. And another one that was in another location near Lake Street. And going to Lake Street itself, just seeing that destruction, seeing all these buildings that were just standing just yesterday in ruins, feeling the heat emanating from this hot metal, seeing buildings still smoking or still on fire was just, I don't have words to describe what that felt like. But then seeing hundreds, if not thousands of people in the street, just it literally felt like for days there were no rules. On the way to Minneapolis, just driving through St. Paul, the chaos hadn't quite reached St. Paul in terms of destruction like fires, but just driving down the street at noon, there was people looting stores, like walking out with entire TVs. And it just was like, there's no rules anymore. Like everyone is tired. We're fed up and everyone is just doing whatever they can to either, you know, make their voices heard or participate in the dismantling of this system. Like, it just was the craziest thing I've ever seen. So being on that site was also just very powerful seeing where all of this really was ignited. And so my friends and I saw some people who had come out of a store that was actively being looted, but they were all in matching attire, all black. They had red crosses on their clothing and on their arms. And they came out like, get out the way, move, 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 move back. And we're not quite sure what they did in the store, 
but I just knew I didn't want to stay around to find out. I didn't know if it was another fire that was started or if it was a bomb. Like you just, you didn't know what to expect. But I've heard that stories of organized groups in matching attire and they were predominantly white men doing things of that nature was very common during these protests. A lot of this destruction, I will not say that the community did not participate, but there was a lot of outside influences, people from the suburbs, kids that just wanted to come tear things up, groups that specifically wanted to cause chaos that came here and were doing things that the community didn't ask for. So not only was it scary because you could feel the rage and the pain of the people who lived here, it was scary because you had outside influences and we just didn't know what to expect from them and what their aims were. So I would say the chaos, like the destruction lasted for at least four days in a row. People never left the streets, things burned every night and it was just really, really crazy to witness. But after that, things took a bit of a shift Things were not being destroyed as often, but the protests persisted every day. But when night hit, you could feel the energy shift and you knew it wasn't necessarily safe. So community members were making it a point to get people who were not ready to kind of deal with the unknown to go home. And the community members that were out were not just protesting, they were protecting their homes because we got word that there was a lot of, like I said, white supremacists and anarchist groups that were in town specifically to harm people. So I know that I had friends that were in Minneapolis that were you know, ready, like in case they were attacked. I know that there was homes that were broken into, there were people that were shot at, there was people that were chased down the street. And it wasn't just by these outside groups. Sometimes it was literally the National Guard or the police that would I had friends who had a medical house set up to help the protesters that were already affected by the police with their rubber bullets and their tear gas. They had a medical house to treat these people and the police busted in and started shooting the rubber bullets into the home where the people were actively trying to heal people. They told them what they were doing, that they're helping people and they're just trying to support, you know, and the police didn't listen. They just shot anybody. They didn't care who they were shooting. They didn't ask why, they just shot. And there's just so many cases like that. So for the days after the destruction, we're just this threat from unknown sources, a threat from the police and the National Guard that did not have any type of, you know, thought behind what they were doing to attack people. And so for multiple days beyond that, we were just on edge, not knowing if we're safe, not knowing if there's a civil war about to break out amongst, you know, the races in the city. It was just very, very scary and unknown. And this is at the same time that the country started protesting and, you know, everyone in all these other cities was outside. So while everyone in these other cities is protesting still the murder of George Floyd, I think the Twin Cities kind of transitioned a bit to this was ignited by George Floyd, but now there's a literal race war that's brewing and we're just not sure how far it's going to go. And we're not quite sure what we need to do to be safe or how long it's going to last. So it was probably like a week or a week and a half straight of just the craziest stuff that I've ever experienced in my life. And we're finally getting to a point now where I have not heard as many accounts of people attacking people in the streets or breaking into homes or fires being started. It's finally seeming like it's calming down, <laughs> hopefully for good. But, you know, we're really not sure at this point. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your firsthand account. I think 
especially like not being there and like the news sharing like so many different stories this was so powerful and we we wanted to know like the growth connection evolution that the cities have experienced because of this yeah um so like i said this was genuinely a terrifying and traumatic time but at the same time it was so inspiring and empowering we literally saw people activate like from all walks of life and they were ready to support each other i've never had so many people just checking in like what do you need what can i do whether you're just donating funds whether you're the person driving to the suburbs to get supplies for people you've never met whether you're someone that's operating a donation drop site whether you're someone that's on the front lines you know going up against the police and the, cor the corrupt system risking your life literally everyone in the cities had a part everyone was tapped in everyone was supporting each other and i've never seen anything like that i just feel like it was just a common accord that everyone knew we are activated, we are standing together, we're doing what we can to support each other. And I'm just really hoping that this carries forward into the future. I feel like as things are dying down, you can literally feel the energy shifting and it's uncertain whether or not we're gonna keep up the efforts, what the efforts even are, what we're focusing on. But I do think something that's persisting even as the energy calms down is this connection that we all have. I still am just getting so many messages from people who want to figure out how to be involved and want to offer their support and make sure that they're standing with whatever the community needs as we move forward. And I've just, especially in a place as diverse as the Twin Cities, we have people from all over the world that live here. And seeing us all band together for a common good is, it's genuinely, I don't have words. It's just really, really inspiring. Through the midst of this trauma, we've been able to find hope. Yeah, and there's definitely a pattern where, you know, um, after, uh, you know, trauma and tragedies, we, the community come together and help each other. And I agree with you. I think def you know, with all these protesting, and people are declaring that they're not going to take it anymore, I think things will change. Like, it will never, I don't think it's going to stop. So, no, um, definitely not. Like, we've seen so many changes already just with the Minneapolis Police Department that is very known for corrupt practices, not even just in relation to police brutality, but so many things that they don't do right and that they do are not serving the public. Um, some of their biggest sponsors and partners have completely cut ties with them. Like the University of Minnesota is no longer doing business with them. The whole Minneapolis public school system has cut ties with them. Like all of that is huge. I feel like so often they just do what they want and can get away with whatever. But there's a lot of people that are like, no, we have time today. We are going to talk about this. And they are taking action to make sure even the conversation of the police department being defunded and disbanded is a very real conversation that's happening right now and i'm blown away by the fact that that's even on the table like people are listening and that's amazing for sure um so i just was curious because as you said before you know you're a dj you're a producer you're an illustrator and i wanted to know what is your relationship between like arts and advocacy? You know, do they go hand in hand? Yeah, um, I think that they are so directly related. It's crazy. Even if 
Um, working with organizers in the city who are not artists, they always have an artist right by their side. I think art is so essential to any of these movements to really be felt and heard. Um, for example, if you want to reach people, you could talk to them, you could preach at them, which in itself is an art as well. You know, speech is, you know, an artistic form. But I feel like the more ways you can di diversify your message to reach the public, the more you're going to be heard, whether that's a community mural, whether that's a song that ignites the people, you know, flyers that get people to come to events. The arts are so intrinsic to making movements happen. I genuinely don't feel like it's possible to do this work without having an artist's touch to make sure that it's felt and heard by the community. And art is also so essential for providing healing. When you go to the space, the location where George Floyd was murdered, it's now a memorial site and it's full of art from the community. There's flowers, there's messages, there's chalk art. There's just so much that makes that space that's a place of trauma and pain and transformed it into something that's beautiful that, beautiful that can bring the community together. And all of that is directly related to art. I think through art, we're able to find healing and make sense of all the craziness that's happening and transmute that pain into something that inspires us to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, I had an image in my head when you're describing, like, I haven't seen it yet, the pictures of a Jordan Floyd Memorial, but describing um, how people, you know, brought their own pieces of artwork is, I can just, just imagine it brings a lot of happiness and some, somewhat of some peace, you know, to what had happened. And lastly, um, our last question. Since our podcast is about finding your why, what would you say your why is? Mm. <laughs> I honestly feel like I've been trying to figure that out over the years. Um, I know first before I found my why, I think I found my what, which was art. Um, it started with painting and then evolved to graphic design, evolved to music, DJing, anything that I can do to express myself creatively, I found healing and purpose through. And so I think it helped to just get active and figure out what I like to do. And then from there, I was able to find the meaning behind it. I suppose my why would be understanding what it means to be human and connecting with other people to understand that through reflection in others. I am not only a creative, I'm a world traveler. I work mostly online. So I'm able to travel the world to just keep doing what I'm doing on the internet and then go see what's happening in other countries. So I found so much fulfillment just connecting with cultures all over the world, seeing how people live, hearing their languages, eating their food, just realizing that at the end of the day, even if we do things differently, we're all human and we're all just trying to make sense of what it means to be a human in this reality on this earth, working together to exist. And so I suppose that's what my why is behind my art is just trying to connect with as many people as possible, to see as many viewpoints as possible, and to find some sense of self through the expressions and the different methods of expressing myself that I've found. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, where can we find you? 
Um, I'm mostly on Instagram. You can check me out at orum.oro. Um, so it's A-U-R-U-M period O-R-O. Um, that's probably my main platform. Um, I'm also, like I said, I do music. So you can also find Orum Oro on iTunes and Spotify. I've only released one song so far that I made while I was bored on quarantine, but <laughs> I'll be putting out lots more music as the world kind of slowly shifts back to normal. So you can definitely stay tuned with my music and art journey on there as well. That's awesome. And also, how can we get involved in your organization? Yeah, so the work that we're doing is, again, through the Outsiders, but that's with a three instead of an E. So it's O-U-T-S-I-D-3-R-S. So on Instagram, it's at the, oh, Instagram, I think is weird. <laughs> I think on, no, no, no. Yeah, Instagram is, I think, at the underscore Outsiders with a three underscore on <laughs> on um and we're accepting donations through all the major platforms for donations so cash app is at the outsiders venmo at the outsiders and then our paypal is the outsiders at gmail.com but the v has two e's this is a common name so you had to kind of make it work for our efforts i didn't have a ton of time to focusing on unique branding but yeah, so those are all the ways to connect with us, to be involved with our efforts. And as we have more time to figure out what we're doing, we're going to continue to evolve and get everything tight. Please check out Orum and her organization, The Outsiders. And thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you for having me. <laughs>